seated. Welcome to Woven. You look great today, Woven, and I'm glad that we can worship together. This is also Family Sunday. It's Communion Sunday, and we're celebrating communion at the close of this talk. I'll try to keep my talk um, applicable for our young people today. Uh, we are in a series through the New Testament book of Ephesians, and if I'm successful in translating Ephesians to our youngest audience, I'm a great preacher. This is going to be a challenge. Ephesians is a difficult book. Working through it has not been easy, but there's a lot there. And so this series called Dear Woven that we continue today, it's been culminating as Paul writes this letter to this church and I think to us as well. And Paul talks about this picture of God reconciling everything in himself, in Christ. This is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. In Ephesians 1.10, there's this picture of the heavenlies and earth and God saying, I'm going to make everything right. Um, I've been working with a professor at Rice uh, and serving on her board as she's writing this book on science and religion. And as I'm studying up more on science and how it works together with theology, what happens, you know, we think about science, we think that we're not going to find God, it's not going to prove. I think science shows us even more that there is a world that's yearning to be reconciled. Everything disintegrates, and yet God is integrating, reintegrating, bringing together. And so Paul talks about this vision of one new humanity because I think what he's saying is if God is reconciling everything, we have to have a test case. And this test case is going to be the Jew and Gentile project. Is it possible for two different races, one of whom is an ancient, ancient, uh, the Judaism, ancient, ancient, and with its laws and ethics and commandments, can it incorporate non-Jews? And this experiment of racial integration, I think, is the pilot project. It's the beta version of God's project of bringing all of all of creation back together. And that's where we're going to pick off today. We're going to pick up today from that same stream of thought as I talk along three, three headings and make my way through Ephesians chapter 4, the first half of Ephesians 4. These three headings are number one, one new humanity. One new humanity. The second heading is unity in difference. And the third heading is learning well. So once again, one new humanity, unity and difference, learning well. And this is, uh, uh, this is how we're going to make our way. There's a pastoral message in here as well. Um, but we start off with that, one, with that first heading, one new humanity. So if you could turn your attention. I know uh, family Sundays always tend to be a little bit crazy. There tends to be a lot of distractions. But I think that's the beauty of the church. So if you could really, really focus in and pull up on the screen, Ephesians chapter 4, as we make our way through this chapter. Verse 1 of chapter 4. As a prisoner for the Lord. As a prisoner for the Lord. And so Paul here is writing from jail. Some scholars believe that Paul went to prison because he actually took somebody who was not Jewish with him into the temple. And that was a very risky move. You can see that for him. This is not just theory. This is practice. He's saying we need to integrate. We need to integrate the, the, the church. 
In many ways, people who think theoretically oftentimes are a little bit too ahead of the game and the results are difficult. And he, he winds up in jail because he believes in this idea of Jew and Gentile together, of races coming together. Well, as a prisoner for the Lord, and you can hear his chains, so just picture as you're listening to me speak, picture or see if you can just imagine what it's like to hear these clanking noises. That's in the background of all of this. Paul says, as a prisoner, I urge you to live a life worthy. Live life worthy. That word live literally means walk. Walk worthy. Now, for kids, do you know who the tough kids are? Do you know who the bad kids are? Do you know who, you know, quote, unquote, when I say bad, I mean those kids that you know are going to bully you. There's, do you, any of you know what a bully looks like? Now, they carry a little swag. They walk a certain way. They walk down the hallway, and then you know that they're going to do something as they cross your path. Well, what Paul says is don't walk like that. Don't walk like bullies anymore. That was a camp theme. Remember, what was that theme? Bullies? Bullies of the Bible. So he says don't walk like bullies of the Bible anymore. Walk differently. Walk worthy. And then he says walk worthy of what? Walk worthy of the calling. Walk worthy of the calling. What is this calling specifically that Paul talks about? Well, when we look back at chapter 3 and 2, this calling that Paul is talking about is this vision of a new society. It's a new society. It's completely out of this world. Nobody's seen anything like it. In chapter 2, verse 15, he talks about one new humanity, and that's this first heading. We're talking about a new, you know, a, a new society. We're talking about a new humanity, a new country. But it's not like anything the world's seen before. He's talking about uh, how Gentiles become fellow citizens and members of this new household, fellow heirs, members and partakers. I shared last Sunday about how I just recently attended my first bar mitzvah. Have any of you guys ever been invited to a bar mitzvah or a bar mit- bat mitzvah? This is what happens when young Jewish children become of age, 13 years old. They get recognized in a special service, a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah. And it, it, was, it was really interesting. Uh, three quarters through the service, they started passing out these jellies, um, these jelly candies, you know, those little packaged jelly candies. And I was eating mine. Uh, but then at the close of the bat, they started throwing it at the, at the, at the, at the kid. Um, or at the, at the young man now. And I think the idea was, you know, throwing blessings or something like that. All to say that it was a wonderful experience attending my first bar mitzvah. I really enjoyed it, but I felt longing in my heart. Part of me felt like I wish I, wish I could be part of this covenant. I wish I, could be part, I wish I could enjoy this. But I will always be, because of my ethnic, make, my ethnic identity, somebody on the outskirts. I will never be an honorary member given my own yarmulke and my own shawl, and I will never truly be one who can sit up in the front. Thank God for Jesus. Thank God for Jesus. Because of Jesus, we participate in these covenants. We participate in these promises given to Abraham and to David. We become part of this new uh, identity of Jew and Gentile together. We're called to it is what Paul says. We're called. 
But the thing about Paul is Paul is one of those guys that's really an idealist. He talks about things uh, and he says, this is the vision. But everybody's like, how practical is this? How practical is, how is this going to play out, Paul? And so Paul continues on and he says, this is the vision, this is the calling. And so therefore, in verse 2, what does he say? Look on the screen. He says, be four things. Can you kids point out and identify what those four things are? Patient, humble, gentle, and bearing with one another. So here's Paul, kind of being a typical pastor, saying, this is the way forward. Put your head down and just kind of pile through it with patience, bearing with one another, love and gentleness. And you know, I'm not one to say that everything Paul says, just because he says it, that means we apply it perfectly. It is Holy Scripture. But at the same time, 2,000 years of church history and even my own experience of leading a church, it is hard. Ministry is a unique task. I'm fortunate to have people in an accountability group of, from different backgrounds and professions for whom I can pour out my soul and talk through. But sometimes when I talk about my own struggles with ministry and leadership, it's just like, woo, they don't get it. And I don't blame them. It's a unique, unique situation with a lot of emotional dynamics. You know, in fact, when Paul says, be humble, be gentle, be patient, be bear with one another. You know that word, bear with one another? You know that Greek word there? Uh, anechomai, bear with one another. You know what that word means, to bear with each other? That word, same Greek word, is used in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul says, when we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. We bear. We bear with it. When we're persecuted, we bear with it. So in other words, the same word to describe persecution, Paul is using here, almost as if to say, just get through it. Put your head down and love one another. And the real challenge of bearing one another, bearing with one another, is not that you can just do it ad infinitum and that you can just do it without it becoming very difficult in the process. I think that bearing with one another requires a lot more than just willpower. It, it requires understanding emotions, understanding dynamics, knowing how to talk, knowing how to put things up in the front, to be transparent, to wrestle together with everybody. You know, if you know Myers-Briggs, I am an INF, borderline T, P, borderline J. I tend to process internally. And some of you, you might be like that as well, or you might, you, might, uh, you, might, you might bear and bear and bear until you've just had, you can't take anymore. And bearing with one another starts to feel like exactly that word, persecution. And then walls come up. Recently I watched, I rewatched Goodwill Hunting. This is not a kid that any of you, this is not a movie that any of you kids should have watched. But if you've watched Goodwill Hunting and you recall this young, brilliant person that nobody could get through because there were walls, defense mechanisms. Friends, bearing with one another requires those defense mechanisms being removed on all of our parts. It requires 
being on each other's teams, just like A.J. Hinch would stand up for a closing pitcher that can't seem to get the job done in the clutch. Bearing with one another requires defenses coming down and saying, Coach, I'm struggling. It requires, I need help. It requires transparency to say, I can't do this. It requires even for leaders to be able to say, what do you think? Help me out. Lead together with me. You see, Paul continues on talking about bearing with one another. But you know, Paul is right. Because he knows that this new experiment needs to last. It needs to work or else this church, this idea of ecclesia, ecclesia, it's not going to work. It's going to require bearing with one another, a lot of humility, a lot of patience, a lot of gentleness. And then he continues in verse 3. What does it say in verse 3, kids? Make, it says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit with your older brother or your younger sister or your classmate or your friends. Make every, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be picking on any, any particular people here, but this applies to all of us. Make every effort. Paul knows that when he's gone, when he is gone, he knows that prison might even end in execution. So Paul knows when he's gone, this experiment, it needs to continue. It's going to need to continue beyond his lifetime, and thank God it did. Not perfectly, but it needed to continue. Because the church will always go through these seasons of struggling to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Keeping unity is a lot more than just saying, you know, on Sunday morning, how are you? It's about unity of the Spirit. I want to tell you a story about a church that struggled to keep the unity of the Spirit. During World War II, during World War II, uh, the leader of Nazi Germany was Hitler. And he commanded that all of the churches in Germany needed to uh, pretty much submit to the Nazi party and to submit to their agenda. And there was one particular denomination uh, called the Brethren Assemblies. And the Brethren Assemblies, half of them said, we cannot side with Hitler. These were German Christians. We cannot side with Hitler. What he's doing is ethically wrong. And then the other half of the Brethren Assembly said, we will go with, with Nazi Germany. We will go with Hitler. Now, after the war was over, after the war was over, finally they came back together, uh, but with a lot of bitterness. You see, for those who opposed Hitler and could not join, many of them died in concentration camps. Every, there was not a family of the Brethren Assemblies that did not have somebody die in the concentration camps. So you understand, when they come back together, I'm not breaking bread with you. I am not going to be served communion by your hands because you are a traitor. Or you gave in to an unethical leader. You were on the side of, of Nazi Germany. And so there was a lot of bitterness and it threatened to tear apart the brethren assemblies. And so they said we have to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And so they gathered together. They gathered together, but instead of hashing it out, what they did is they spent several days in silence and listening, each of them, both sides, both sides. 
And as they listened and prayed, they came back together and they shared what they were experiencing in their hearts from the Spirit. And as they shared, the tears began to fall as both sides realized that they were sinners in need of grace. And as they cried and held hands and mourned those who had died for righteousness, as they admitted shortcomings and sins and flaws, one observer remarked, they were just one. They became one. This is an example of making every effort to keep the unity of the bond, the, the unity in the spirit and the bond of peace. But it happened as they came together. It, came, it happened as they dropped their defense mechanisms. It happened as they exposed themselves. Friends, I think Paul didn't know how difficult it was going to be. I think Paul had a lot of ideas. He knew how to gather small congregations, and then he would take off every three years or every two years or one year and then start another new church and then start another new church, start another new church. Paul was one of the great apostles, but if there's one thing that I know that he doesn't, it's how to stay. Paul shepherded many congregations, but he didn't stay with one church for a long time. And God called him to do that. But the work of working with the church into the ninth inning and working with your team and seeing sometimes your clothes are struggling and knowing the whole weight of the world is on the Astros and it's on your shoulders and leading well so that you're not just going to the ninth inning, but you've know, you know you've got six more games to go. This is the art of leadership. So in some ways, I'm like, sure, Paul, easy for you to say. It's easy for you to conclude in verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over and through all and all. Let's just all get along. Everybody's one, one, one. The Holy Spirit is one. Jesus is one. And Father is one. Together, they're one. Little did Paul realize how hard it would be to formulate the doctrine of the Trinity after this statement. Easy for you to say, Paul. But on the same token, the Trinity, the idea of being one, takes a lot more work. I thank God for Paul. I thank God for Jesus that we can even gain access. And for people like Paul to pave the way, to even give up his life for the faith. But unity needs to also be talked about in the context of difference. This is the second heading. The second heading, unity and difference. So Paul here says, but to each one of us, after all this talk about oneness, he says, but, but in the midst of oneness, there's difference. Each of us has grace. To each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. You know, you got to love listening to Paul. He, he's his rabbit trail like this, and then sometimes come, and then he always comes back. Do you understand what he's saying here? You know what Paul is saying? Paul is saying we are one. But there are certain people uniquely called and gifted. And these per people uniquely called and gifted, they are not just called and gifted. They are gifted to the people of God. 
They are gifted to the church. That's why he says, so Christ gave, gifted apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to the community of God. Why? To equip the people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, what Paul is essentially saying is we are all one, but there are some amongst us, like Bobby Bang, who are uniquely called and gifted to bless everybody else in the congregation. So that when Bobby comes up here and says, I'm going to lead a song, and everybody's just like, oh my God, I'm blown away by the Spirit. That's a gift to the church because that's exactly what you needed on a Sunday morning is to sing your heart out to God. I'm not going to talk about myself. I'm embarrassed by this conversation that Paul has to bring it up like this. I'm embarrassed for two reasons. Number one, you know I'm always talking about how it's not just me that's the minister. You are the ministers. In fact, I think the job of the preacher is to help his people to preach the rest of the days of the week. So I'm embarrassed because I'm always, this is, Paul is contradicting what my entire doctor of ministry thesis is. But I'm also embarrassed for the second reason, namely, uh, you know, he, he's, he's talking about pastors, how pastors are gifts to the church. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm not going to talk about myself. I want to talk about somebody else. I want to talk about another person who, to me, you want to know what, what, what inspires that, our pastor. Our pastor, what inspires him? I want to tell you what inspires me. There is one person right now that is preeminent on my mind. I don't think anybody here knows him because this is kind of, you know, we know about great saints throughout the last hundreds and thousands of years. There's somebody named Stanley Rowther who recently has, has become a saint, quite literally. Stanley Rowther, if you can pull up that picture, recently became a saint. He was beatified just last month. Does anybody know who Stanley, has anybody heard the name Stanley Rowther at all? I'll tell you about Stanley. I'll, my pleasure to be the first to tell you who this man was. Stanley Rowther died in 1981. So that right away, when you look at this picture, it's kind of surprising to me. It's kind of flattened. He's kind of, he's, he's slim and he, he looks like somebody I would hang out with today. He looks just very familiar. Well, Stanley Rowther grew up in Oklahoma. And when he was growing up in Oklahoma, he was a good farmer, but not really a good student. And Stanley Rowther grew up in a very healthy, loving, faithful, and devout Christian home. Actually, it was a Catholic home. And I know that Protestants, sometimes we, we, we'll kind of get on Catholics and we'll talk about nominal Catholics, but there are Catholics who really love God. You know, press, press alert, right? And his family deeply loved God and Stanley, in that context, although he was a good farmer in Oklahoma, felt called to ministry. And so Stanley Rowther, when he grows up, he goes to college. And where does he go to college? And then he goes to seminary. And he goes to seminary to learn to become a priest because he feels called. Stanley Rowther struggles through seminary. He does a lot better at groundskeeping, plumbing, and gardening than he does in Latin. And finally, there, he, he's on the verge of flunking out. He was not strong enough in his seminary studies. And when they asked him, Stanley, do you want to be a priest? 
His reply as a young college student, for those of you that are maybe a little bit older than the kids, his reply was, yes, I do, but it's all over for me, isn't it? They showed him grace. He said, Stanley, let's try some different things. And they allowed him to com- continue, and the good staff, allowed the, the, the faculty, and, and Stanley was able to complete seminary. He went on to ordination. He was ordained, and finally he was able to serve in several Catholic churches throughout Oklahoma. Father Rather served throughout Oklahoma, but deep in his heart he had a burning desire to shepherd his own congregation. And he heard about a lot of the turmoil that was going on in Latin America, especially in the 1960s and 1970s. And he heard about these people. I'm not even going to try to pronounce the name of these people. All I can say is this was rural Guatemala. And so he asked the archdiocese, uh, and, and they said, they allowed him, and basically he went down and served for 13 years, 13 years in rural Guatemala, shepherding the rural people there as their parish priest for 13 years. Now, that's 10 years longer than Paul served in any con- one congregation. And it was just as dangerous. It was dangerous because at that time in Guatemala, there was tension just as much throughout that Latin America, uh, civil war between the paramilitary and revolutionary groups, the revolutionary poor and the military government, and they they were killing each other. And it came to such a point where it was so dangerous, even Father Rowther himself was placed on a death list, a death list. He was number eight, number eight on the death list. One by one, people from his congregation, imagine looking out and saying, where's, 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 where's Alan? Where's Bobby? One by one, people began disappearing. They were being disappeared. And as people were disappearing and dying, Stanley Rowther was faced with a choice, what do I do? I'm number eight on a death list. He decided, or actually he was asked against his own wishes, but he returned back home to Oklahoma. Stanley Rather returned home to Oklahoma, but was not happy. And he wrestled, and he said, I got to go back. I got to go back. I got to go back to Guatemala. And his father said, why? They're going to kill you. His brother said, they're going to kill you. Why are you going to go back to Guatemala? And his response, you know what he said? This is the statement that I hang over my doorpost of my heart. His famous statement was, the shepherd does not run from his sheep. Showing up as a leader, showing up and being present. Is 51% of the struggle, more than half. The shepherd does not run from his flock. So what happened to Stanley Rowther? This is the rest of the story. Father Rowther returns to Guatemala. You know why? Because he wanted to celebrate Easter with his people. In Guatemala one day, he heard a knock at his door. The paramilitary had broken into the rectory. They took a young teenager who happened to be in the church at that time, and they said, if you don't show us where Father Rowther is, we're going to kill you. And so the teenager, scared, went up and at least gave Father Rowther advance warning. And he knocked on the door and he said, Father, they're here for you. They're here for you. The door opened. 
The teenager ran away, and the last thing he heard Father Rowther say was, kill me here. They broke in. A scuffle ensued. The autopsy revealed there were bruises on his hands. Just because you're a preacher doesn't mean you can't fight. Two shots rang out. One pierced his jaw. The other went into his left temple. And the phone call went home to Stanley Rowther's father. And Stanley Rowther called his daughter and said, they got him. They finally got him. And the family found out and they all wept. Stanley Rowther was buried in Oklahoma except for one part of his body, his heart. The rural people in Guatemala asked for it to be removed so that they could plant his heart under the altar of the church that he pastored and shepherded and built. That to me is a picture of God's gift to his people. I don't have the gumption to say I'm a gift to you guys, but I will point out an, ex- an excellent example when I see it. That is a gift. That is God gifting the people of God with a teacher, an evangelist, a prophet, and a pastor. That's a gift. That's my hero. And I am so blessed to hear that just last month, after a lengthy process, Father Rowther was finally beatified. Beatified. What does that mean? Does that mean you can call him a saint now? Yeah, you can call him Saint Rowther now. That's an example. I conclude with this. We're at the finish line. So... Paul talks about this one new humanity, but he talks about unity and difference because in this oneness, there are some that are uniquely gifted, like Bobby, to bless the rest, to be a gift. And then Pastor Paul concludes with this third heading, learning well, where he says in verse 11, I'm sorry, where he says in verse 13, 14. (laughs) So, Listen to these pastors, these preachers, these teachers, so that we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Friends, I will tell you that my agenda as I pastor woven is not to teach you right thoughts, right doctrine, but to teach you right behavior and hopefully leading by example. I am not just interested in making you spout off the perfect creeds just exactly as I want to hear them. As much as that's important, I am more interested in your emotional, spiritual, and relational and familial development. Because what good is a smart Christian who doesn't take care of his or her own loved ones? Who is not able to reconcile broken relationships? We are not just opinionated people here, friends. We are growing deeper As a small church, we're not going to be a small church forever. But we are growing deeper relationally, emotionally, systemically. And finally, in verse 15, Paul wraps it up by saying, Instead, speak the truth in love. One of the biggest things that I've learned is as an introvert, not speaking the truth Not speaking at all actually can cause more harm than good. And sometimes I'm scared to speak. You think that it's easy for a pastor to kind of of get in your junk, right? 
or even to say what's going on with this process. Or let... It's not easy, but speak the truth in love. Show up. Show up. This is one of my, one of my accountability partners tells me. Show up. Show up. Don't just sit, the game's on, I'm in my underwear, watching, you know, the first to the ninth inning. Show up with your family, your loved ones, and so on and so forth. Show up. Then we will grow in every respect to become the mature body that Paul envisions, who is the head that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Friends, we're going to transition into the Lord's table here. Eating this meal every last Sunday of the month is for us a step of maturity. Well, it's just bread. It's just juice. Actually, when we eat the bread and the juice, we ingest Christ, whether we believe that in a real sense or in in just a spiritual sense. What we're doing is we're identifying with Christ. How can we eat Christ if we're not learning to reconcile, to be transparent, to drop our defense mechanisms? How can we eat Christ even if, it's, if you, even if you believe it's just bread, how can we unite ourselves with Christ if we are not growing mature in our faith, as Paul says? So close your eyes. Examine your conscience before you take this. We are taught in the Holy Scriptures to examine ourselves. You're going to eat something. You're not just going to walk up and eat bread, friends. Well, and, you know, I'm not going to get into sacramental theology here. Again, that's not my interest. What you are doing, however, is in a real way uniting yourself with Christ. Are you ready to unite yourself with Christ? Did you live your life in such a way so that you are, as Paul says, mature, part of the whole body, joined, held together? Are you even united with yourself? Do you even know what's going on within so that when you take this meal, that you know that you're fully present, that you're showing up? Are you able to eat this with a clean conscience today? You know, if I'm honest, it's hard for me too. Not every Sunday I come, uh, every last Sunday do I come to the table with a perfectly clean conscience. I look back on the week, I was pretty honorary. I struggled, I, I, I gave a piece of my mind or I did something that I regretted. You don't deserve to eat this, but you get to. We get to. And isn't that awesome? Isn't that truly a gift? And so, Father, we come to the table today. And in coming to the table... We pray that, Lord, you would encounter us on you, that we would have a very real spiritual experience. Lord, we pray. We give to you our sins. We give to you our foibles. We give to you all the things that, Lord, we know just weren't right. And finally, in the act of eating, we unite ourselves not just to you, but to the body, the body of Christ, to Woven Covenant Church, praying that in this act of eating, you would make us one. In Jesus' name.
This has been a Woven Church podcast. Woven Church is a multi-ethnic missional church that meets in West Houston. We invite you to check us out on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. To find out more, visit us online at www.wovenchurch.org. That's www.wovenchurch.org.